Well, if you were here last week, you will recall that this morning you are going to recite Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Now, just look to your right and look to your left. And notice all of the people who are pretending to be snowed in this morning <laughs> because they did not memorize Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. And they were too ashamed to show up for church. Unbelievable. Well, in case you happened to not memorize it, but you were brave enough to show up or you just forgot about it entirely, I'm going to give you a free pass. Someone already told me they planned on mouthing it this morning. So we will just, I'll read it and you can follow along in your head if you have it memorized. That's wonderful but we don't need to know who did and who didn't. Although maybe next week, maybe next week we'll try something like that. I remember actually, I was not, I was not a good youth pastor. But when I started working with youth, I remember once giving the, the kids uh, a preliminary sort of theological test one Sunday school period, and they filled it out, and I told them at the end, just so you know, I'm going to mark this, and next week in the service, we're going to put up on the overhead your names and the rank order and your grades so your parents will know exactly how you did. They were, <laughs> some of them were a little bit alarmed. But anyway, we won't, we won't, we won't do that uh, this morning. So this morning we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, this is the Word of God. In the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? 
Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? There's a, there's a lot in uh, this text. If I th- contemplated, I mean, it, it, this wasn't realistic, but I, I had contemplated taking this over the next couple of weeks and just going through the Old Testament text that he's drawing from. It's almost necessary to do that in some ways, uh, to, to get the context and the flavor and the background of these verses that he's quoting. Uh, I'm not going to do that, but with the snow, you're not in a hurry to go anywhere, so I just might... Uh, Add a couple hours uh, to this morning's message, and, and you'll be delighted, no doubt. Uh, before we look at this in, in all seriousness, this, this is a very challenging text uh, for a variety of reasons. So let's pray. Uh, take a moment individually to bow before the Lord. Ask His Spirit to help, uh, to help you particularly, to help us as we look to His Word. And after a few moments, I'll lead us together in prayer. Father, you are a God who has spoken. You spoke in the past through the prophets many times in various ways. In these latter days, in in this era of salvation history in which we live, you have spoken climactically and finally through your Son. It is by your Spirit that we can hear his words. So we pray, Father, that you will give us your spirit, give us a full measure of your spirit this morning. As we come to your word, we, we want to know it, we want to know it so we can know you, so we can know Christ. We want to know how to read the Old Testament scriptures well, we want to know how they apply in fulfillment in the New Covenant era. And we want to see the sun that these texts are about. Lord, you know uh, better than we do, of course, all of the, all of the circumstances that keep people uh, away this morning. I uh, just pray that wherever uh, your people are, that they will be blessed, that you will draw them close to yourself. We thank you that you are a God uh, who can minister to people directly and immediately uh, in their homes, uh, in their cars, wherever they are. Uh, and Father, we pray that you will do that. We pray that you will bring your word to mind uh, and impress it deeply on their hearts. And we pray that they will be able to worship you and appreciate you and grow in your grace and in their relationship with Jesus Christ, even this morning, wherever they are. And for us who are here... Lord, help us to be mindful that today is the gift that you give us. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. Help us to drink from your word this morning as if it may be. Help us to pay attention as if this may be our last opportunity to hear from you. If, if today was all we had, how, how much we would 
cling in, in anticipation and attention to your word, how much we would focus upon it and, and try to draw everything out of it. So, Father, by your Spirit, give us that gift of undivided attention to your word. Draw us to yourself through it, through the Son, for the Son. For we ask it in his holy name. Amen. Now, what you get uh, in verses 5 through 14 is a bit of a catena of Old Testament texts, mainly drawn from Psalms. And a lot of it might seem, or, or some of it might seem slightly sort of acontextual or even out of context, unless you put a few interpretive ideas sort of firmly into your mind. So, one of the things that's just absolutely essential to understand about the way that these verses are quoted is this. In the first four verses of Hebrews 1, you've already been told that God spoke to our ancestors different times, piecemeal fashion, variety of ways. And so one of the questions is, well, what are the different ways that God spoke? Well, he, he sometimes put messages in the mouths of his prophets, straight verbal prediction, this is what's going to happen, this is what you ought to do. I mean, the, the fact is, if you read the prophets, you'll notice that, that the majority of what's in the prophetic text is not future prediction. It's calling people to faithfulness in terms of covenant stipulations in their day. That is, it's calling them to repentance and faithfulness and following the Lord and obedience to the law, etc., etc. Only the minority of prophetic texts is actually saying, this is what will happen in the future. And often, actually, there's a a connection with that. So often the prophets will say, this is what will happen in the future because you are not repenting, etc. Or if you will repent, then this is what will happen in the future. So, so very rarely are you ever getting just future predictions uh, that aren't tied to present obedience or disobedience. There's always this ethical function, even to the, prof- uh, to the prophetic future. So sometimes God predicts what will happen through a prophet. But other times, God builds categories into history. Uh, matches. Sometimes we call this uh, typology, types. And the idea is God is building up categories for what the Messiah will be and do. So that when he shows up, people can see, oh my goodness, he, he reminds us exactly of Moses, but he's better. You know, he, he's, he's a great king like David, but David had all kinds of problems which he doesn't have. He's like David, but better. He's like Aaron the high priest and all those priests, but he's better. Uh, and then when he dies on the cross, he, he's in some ways analogous to all of those sacrificial animals, but he's better. And so one of the things that Hebrews is doing is the book of Hebrews is showing us the supremacy and superiority of Jesus in every way. But a lot of what it's doing is it's showing us that he's actually the fulfillment of all of these types. He matches all these Old Testament categories. So he's prophet, priest, and king. He's a prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. He's the son of David, but David's Lord, Psalm 2, Psalm 110. He's Israel because Israel in Exodus is called God's firstborn son. But everything Israel was supposed to be, and you think, well, what, what was the job of Israel? 
Israel was supposed to, through their covenant faithfulness, show all of the nations around them how great God was. But they failed. Christ, as the firstborn in some ways, is just doing what Israel was supposed to do. Showing the nations the glory of God through covenant faithfulness. Where Israel fails, Jesus succeeds. Where King David fails, Jesus succeeds. Where the priesthood failed, Jesus succeeds. And so you just keep going through all of these different categories in the Old Testament, and what you find out is that Jesus was just enough like all of those people and institutions and events that when he showed up and started doing things and teaching things and just being who he was, through the Holy Spirit, eventually some people recognized him. You're the one. You're the one who fits all of those categories. It couldn't be anyone else. It has to be you. It's impossible that any one person could match that well. You match everything. You match it perfectly. You're the one we've been waiting for. Through the Spirit, the light went on. I sort of had an epiphany. It's Jesus. He's the one. He's the only one. All of the Old Testament, all of a sudden, all of that piecemeal revelation, all of a sudden, it all makes sense. It's all coherent because it's seen to find its fulfillment in Jesus and Jesus alone. That's the lens in which these texts make sense. It's the matching lens, not the future prediction lens of prophecy. So, Verse 4, he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Now the author is going to start defending that claim that Jesus is superior to the angels. 4, to which of the angels did God ever say, and, and you'll note, um, obviously, the, the inclusio, the, the literary bracketing of this. So, so you would have noticed, verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, is the introductory uh, statement, which is only repeated at the end for the last quotation, verse 13. So verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say? Verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say? So what you have here is by reusing that opening, you have a literary bracketing. All of these texts hold together uh, saying, look, God has blessed the Son, has a special relationship with the Son that he doesn't have with any of the angels. We start out by saying, to which of the angels did God ever say? We end by saying, to which of the angels did God ever say? It's the exact same thing. Everything in the center holds together. Four, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The first verse is Psalm 2-7. Uh, the second one is Second Samuel uh, 7.14. Both of these are extraordinarily important texts. The first one, uh, and it, w- it would be helpful, uh, at, at this point I just kind of wanted to go on a really long uh, rabbit, rabbity digression, um, uh, about the structure of Psalm 1 and 2. Uh, I'll bypass that, and I'll even bypass the structure of Psalm 2, just to tell you this. Psalm 2.7 uh, begins the third symmetrical segment of four that Psalm 2 is divided into. And it starts with, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. So now the king is saying what the Lord has said. This is what God says. 
you are my son, today I become your father. So it was God speaking to the king. The next thing he says is, ask of me and I will make the, the, the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with a rod of iron. And so what it is, is God saying to the king, today you are my son, I am your father, I will give you the inheritance that you want. Now if you think about verses 1 through 4, you will recall that the son is the heir of all things. It's actually probably a reference setting up the quotation from Psalm 2. You're supposed to be familiar with the context of Psalm 2 in general, not just this one verse. But the idea was this, very simply. When the king in David's line came to the throne, is when he was enthroned, he was adopted as the son of God because In Israel, the king reigned on behalf of God. He was not a law unto himself. He was an agent who enforced the law of God. So God's reign in Israel was mediated through the king. And the people were mediated, in a sense, to God through the king as well. So in that sense, the king represented God in a family-type relationship. God says, as you reign on my behalf, it's like you're my son. Now, he never said that to an angel. There's something very special that was given to the Davidic kingship. 2 Samuel 7.14, the next verse that's quoted, is sometimes called the Davidic covenant. This is when God makes a covenant with David. You will always have a son who reigns. And the idea there, of course, is you either always have to have a son, sort of always taking over the throne as one dies, there's always a succession, or else you finally have a son who reigns forever. Uh, That's, of course, what we get with Jesus. Uh, But the idea is that God enters into a covenant with David, you will always have a son who reigns on the throne. This kingdom will will never end. He will be my son. I will be his father. Very similar to Psalm 2-7. God never says this to an angel. God never takes an angel to this special status of sonship or reigning. Now, at some level, you want to say, yes, that's the Davidic son. That's the Davidic king. This is not, in the first instance, talking about Christ. Well, exactly. It's not talking about Christ. It's talking about David and David's sonship and a covenant with David and a covenant with the Davidic king because when Jesus shows up, he's the one who brings that whole line to fulfillment. He he brings that whole pattern of kingship to fulfillment. He brings the whole motif of royal reign to fulfillment. In other words, the principle is this. If it applies to someone like David How much more does it apply to someone like Jesus, who's the epitome of all of what you could ever hope for in David? If it applies to Israel, how much more does it apply to Jesus, who is is Israel in a transcendent way? If it applies here, it applies much more to to Jesus. If it applies to the one who fails, how much more does it apply to the one who succeeds? And so in that sense, the idea here is, look, Even the angels were never called God's son in this capacity. It was given to the Davidic king, and Jesus is David's Lord. Jesus is the the son of David who will reign forever. 
And so if God would call David his son, or if God would call Solomon his son, how much more is it fitting and proper to refer to Jesus Christ as the Son of God? In fact, not only that, but it begins to run on both a functional and an ontological level, by which I mean this. Jesus acts perfectly as the Son, and in his nature and essence, he is exactly like the Father. The Davidic king needed to be adopted. Jesus is never adopted by the Father because he's the natural son. He flows out of the essence of the Father. They share the same nature. You get this in Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That is, he is the Son. He's the Son. He's the Son. He's not the Son because of God's decree. He's not the Son because he's adopted. He is the Son because that's what his actual nature is. And so if some of these texts apply to beings who are adopted by God, how much more do they apply to the natural Son of God is the idea, the one who shares the very essence of the Father. And again, verse 6, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, this verse is drawn from Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32 uh, contains the song of Moses at the very end of Moses' life before he dies and the children of Israel go into the promised land. Uh, Moses sort of rehearses many of the great things God has done. And he goes over all these things that God has done. And in, when the Greeks translated the Hebrew Old Testament, they inserted this phrase, let all God's angels worship him, in between two lines in Deuteronomy 32.43. So the text reads, Rejoice, O nations, with his people, and let all the angels worship him, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. In other words, all of the nations rejoice, O nations, with his people. All of the world is being called to praise God. The text is very clear about that. It's about God. Because he will avenge the blood of his servants. With that, tot that total view of creation praising God, the Greek translators insert, let all God's angels worship him. In other words, all they're doing is they're explicating the number of people who are supposed to worship God. Now, when the author of Hebrews reads that text, he takes it as a genuine declaration that God has commanded his angels to worship his firstborn, or to worship his son. Let all God's angels worship him. Paul will quote pagan poets. Uh, Jude will quote, will quote um, extra-biblical literature. And so when you have some of these quotations, what you have is, through the working of the Holy Spirit, things that are true are picked up in, in an inspired and an errant way as part of the New Testament text. 
And so the author here is following the Greek translators to give us the truth that God has commanded, that, that the angels are commanded to worship God. Let all God's angels worship him. Now, just hold on to that for one moment. In the original context of Deuteronomy 32, God is being praised by the nations and his angels for bringing Israel, that is, his firstborn son through Exodus, into the promised land. Verse 6, again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So Deuteronomy 32 is about God bringing his firstborn, Israel, into the promised land and being worshipped because of it. Now the question then becomes, how does this apply to Jesus? Well, it would seem to run somewhere along these lines. Number one, there actually is a bit of an ambiguity in when God brings his firstborn into the world. That is, is this the firstborn coming into the world for the first time, that is the incarnation, which we know that angels did worship at that time? Is this when the Son will return, second coming, coming back into the world, which we know he has said that he will come with his father's angels? Or was it when he was sort of taken into the fulfillment of promised land, that is, when he goes into the heavenly country, when he experiences the ascension and exaltation to the right hand of the Father, where he's accompanied by angels as well? Well, Frankly, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, If it's first coming incarnation, if it's exaltation and ascension, or if it's second coming... Either way, God's firstborn title of supremacy is coming into the world, has come into the world, and the main point is that the angels are commanded to worship him. Let all God's angels worship him. This text is explicitly about angels worshiping God. And it is explicitly applied to angels worshiping Jesus by the author of Hebrews. Now, how can you do that without absolutely destroying the original point in context? In other words, how can you do that without being guilty of twisting and abusing the original text? Well, There's only one possible way, and it's so simple, but so freighted with heavy spiritual weight that you can either accept it or you can't. In some ways, you can almost understand people not accepting it because it's really big, but it's also really clear. And it's this. In the first century, you had a bunch of people who would die for their monotheism. 
in the same way Muslims will die for their monotheism today. That is, they believe there was one God, only one God. They were willing to die for it. And in this group of confirmed monotheists, you had a bunch of people who began to believe that a man, Jesus of Nazareth, was also God. That he was God in human flesh. And that although there was only one God, they were always monotheists. They believed there was plurality in, in the one God. That is, they believed that there was one God, but he was triune. There was one God, but he was Trinity. There was one God, but he was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son, verse 3, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What does that mean? It means he's God. That's the claim. This claim is so staggering and shocking in the first century that it caused literal persecution and bloodshed. To us, we don't even bat an eye. This far down the pipe in terms of creeds and confessions and teaching and preaching and all of the rest, we just go, oh, Jesus is God. They thought Jesus was God, of course. This caused a revolution in the first century. This led to people's death. How could you ever think a man was God? Well, the argument in the New Testament is they thought he was God because he was. And if it is fitting to worship God, then it's fitting to worship him. This is actually one of the most staggering categories of New Testament proof for the deity of Christ. Again and again and again, Jesus is literally worshipped. He's worshipped as God, which is the height of blasphemy, unless it's true. You could only worship God. Let all God's angels worship Him. Who? The Son. The whole argument is that the Son is greater than the angels. The argument here is that the angels are commanded to worship the Son. Well, how can the angels be commanded to worship the Son? He's God. That's the only way. He's superior to the angels, the argument is, because he's God and worthy of worship. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. In other words, the angels are made. They are created. They're given a task. The Son is worshipped by them. In fact, in verse 3 again, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He, he, he's the co-ruler with God, sharing in God's glory. All that he, Everything that the Father is, the Son is. The angels are created, they're made, they're servants. Flames of fire. That would actually be very interesting to, to, to work through. We don't have time. Clear superiority. Jesus is the ruler and the creator of all things. The angels are part of the created order and servants. In contrast to the servants, but about the Son, he says, and this is, this is a text. 
Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Now, if you read Psalm 45, something is going on there that is just almost impossible. Following was often sort of the exaggerated court rhetoric of of ancient Near Eastern courts, but very, 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 very rarely ever instance in Israel. You actually have the court poet writing Psalm 45 about the king on his wedding day. You have him address the king as God. Now, it is important to recognize that the word God, just like our English word Lord, can have a variety of meanings. So, uh, you, can, uh, you could call someone today Lord in a royal context without referring to them as Yahweh, the Lord God. Um, the word God in Hebrew has sort of a somewhat similar semantic range. So you could call uh, a a mighty person or a ruler God, for example. You could talk about certain spirit beings that are really powerful as gods. Well, we do that today. We talk about, we have small g God and gods and goddesses. Same word, God, small g, capital G, context determines. So here what you have is a very remarkable instance of a Hebrew poet referring to the king as God. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. But about the son, he says, well, who's the he who's speaking? In all these verses, the introductory he, he says, is God. In other words, about the son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever. And if the poet really is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then it is God who's speaking, actually, anyway. God addresses the son as God. Now, What you have here is, again, the idea of absolute fulfillment. So, if it's possible to address the Davidic king in this special context as God, because he is God's representative over the people. But you, you'll remember when, uh, when Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he's concerned he doesn't speak very well. And, and God says, okay, Aaron can go and be the spokesperson. He will be the prophet. You will be like God to him. That's sort of the idea here. In the same way that Moses is like God to Aaron, the king is like God to the people because he rules and reigns over them on God's behalf. Now, if he can then be, in that situation, if the king can then be addressed as God, how much more, again, the lens of fulfillment? 
If a fallen, wicked, sinful human king can be addressed as God's son and actually as God, how much more does that apply to Jesus, the fulfillment of kingship, the one who's actually perfect, the one who is in his very nature God? If Psalm 45 applies at all to anyone, it applies to Jesus because he actually is God and his throne actually lasts forever. That's the point. Angels are servants. Your throne, oh God, will last forever. God himself, but about the Son, God says, your throne, O God, will last forever. He has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. He also says again, who is the he who's speaking? In every one of these instances, it's God. And this is essential to understanding this next next, uh, quotation. He, that is, God also says, in the beginning, Lord. That is, God is addressing someone who is the Lord. Because God is speaking to the Lord. Who's the Lord? Well, clearly here, it's the Son. It's Christ. God also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth. In other words, God is saying to the Son, you're the creator. You're the maker, which we shouldn't find surprising because in, verse, uh, in, verses, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. That is, you've already been told he's the maker of the universe. And, and here God is speaking to the Lord, to the Son, saying, you are the one who laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. I mean, you could never say that to an angel. They will perish, but you remain. That is, he's immutable, he's imperishable. Everything changes except him. He is eternal. Your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels did God ever say? Back to your inclusio. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, there's an awful lot going on in Psalm 110, uh, which we don't have time to talk about. But the idea here is the Son is the one who's exalted to the right hand of the Father. What have we already been told about angels? Angels are sent to serve. Look at the next verse. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are sent to serve. The Son is exalted to the right hand of the Father where He sits to rule and reign as, as the Father puts all things under His feet. All of His enemies are vanquished. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Yes, He, he, he comes the first time humbly as a servant. But, but now, in, in accomplishing what God gave Him to do, now He reigns and rules over all things. When, when He comes again, He doesn't come humbly as a servant. He comes in all of the full display of his glory, showing who he is for everyone to see for all time. God would never say any of this to the angels. They're servants who serve. The Son's work is completed. He now sits installed in majesty on high at the right hand of God Almighty, ruling and reigning over all things until the last enemy, death, is finally forever put under his feet. So who is the Son? Well, he's the Son of God 
the fulfillment of Davidic covenant, Davidic kingship. The angels worship him. His throne lasts forever. He is God. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Uh, He's immutable and imperishable. And he he is a conqueror who is victorious. He has finished his work of atonement, and now he rules and reigns over all things. That's the Son. And, and, and that's, like, like I, I know you know this because you've been here. That's, that's the Son depicted through, like, a really, really poor presentation of the text. Like, like that's the Son depicted through, you know, a, a bit of a confused, rambling attempt to provide clarity, something which is really difficult. And, and he's still pretty good. You know, you, 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 you actually you think, well, what would he be like if you actually saw him himself so instead of mediated through, through this? Well, the point of this actually begins to be drawn out in chapter 2, which we'll look at, Lord willing, Lord willing, uh, next week. The point is this. If the sun is like this, and part of the sun being like this is that the this is transcendent and incomprehensible to our human minds. You're supposed to be a little bit confused. If you're a lot confused, it's my fault. If you're a little confused, it's because that's what you're supposed to be when you're thinking about how great the sun is. But the point that gets to be drawn in chapter 2 is this. If this is what the sun is like, you really, really ought to pay attention to him. When he speaks, oh, in these last days he's spoken to us by his son. Do you, do you have any idea what the weight of that is? The responsibility that that carries with it? He's spoken to you by his son. This is his son. This is just a glimpse of the outer fringe of who the son is. What will you do if you ignore the son? What will you do if you reject the salvation the son offers? Where will you go if you spurn him? Where will you find anything else? Where will you find anything better? Where will you find anyone who holds a candle to this person the Son of God. That's the point that the author will start drawing for us in chapter 2. Listen to him. He brings salvation. He's the king. Think of Mr. Beaver in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king. That's who the Son of God is. Well, may God help us. May God help us to see the Son, to know Him, and to listen to Him.